Amen. And all God's people said? Amen. Right on. All right. Well, if you got your Bibles, open up your Bibles. Uh, we're going to start down Romans 6. Um, I had a, some stuff prepared, and I just, I wanted to hear what they had to say about Japan. And uh, so we're going to start going. I don't know how far I'm going to get today. I'll be really honest with you. We might get partway through. And then we'll just say, come back next week, all right? So I'm just, I'm giving you it ahead of time, but we're going to be looking today at a passage that um, in my own personal life has become, I think over years, just huge. I think for all of my Christian life, I've been trying to understand this concept of grace. And we laid out this idea last week about grace being much more than just a concept, it's, it's especially the way Paul conveys it in the book of Romans. It's a force. It's a power. But I think in it, too, it's, it's, we, we, you can't lose this sight. It's also this atmosphere of love that God has created for us to know him and love him and to flourish. And so when we ask the question, you know, why do the Daniels, why do these different couples do what they do? It's because they've encountered the grace of Jesus. Once we've encountered the grace of Jesus, let me just say this. I believe this fully, and especially if you don't know Jesus Christ today. Once you've encountered the grace of Jesus, I promise you, you will never be the same. Now, this idea of grace is interesting because when I first started wrestling with grace, I don't know how many of you have ever read the book Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll. It's a really good book and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. But, you know, there's always a journey that we take as we wrestle through grace, right? And one of the first aspects of grace is I just thought, oh my gosh, this freedom that I found now inside of Jesus, this is amazing. But I think in some ways, I didn't understand the freedom for, for what? I, I was young, I was dumb, which I, I now I'm just old and dumb. I don't know, you know, as we kind of work it through, but this freedom, like, okay, God, what is this freedom for? I think this freedom issue has been something we've wrestled through, and in many ways, people take advantage of it in a lot of ways, then misunderstanding what this freedom is for. I remember one time a, a guy sat down with me, and I'll never forget this. He said, you know, I'm just going to rest in God's grace, even if I'm in sin, because I just believe God wants me to be happy. It's kind of taken my thought and making it a little further. It's what Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5 when he dealt with the people that were the, the, the stepmom, you know, uh, having wrong relations with their stepson. He's just like, dude, this can't happen inside of the church, but yet they were so proud of themselves because we have freedom. And one of the scariest cats in all of this discussion about how freedom works it out is a guy named Rasputin. Does anybody know who Rasputin is? The Russian monk. His idea of grace was, is truly, let's just go sin. Let's take sin to its furthest extent because inside of forgiveness and working through the full extent of sin and the full forgiveness of God, that's where we're going to find the greatest joy. And obviously that is an extreme, but this passage that we're in today is actually going to be dealing with this. And this is what is in the back of Paul's head because he knows as he starts to teach about grace, people are going to have questions about it. Then what does it mean? And even all the way back in Romans 3 he knew that people were going to say that somehow he and the people he was with were sandrously somehow saying that, look, we might as well just do, good, do evil, that good may come. That's what he's kind of arguing through. But Paul will not quit pressing on this issue of grace. 
He keeps pressing it constantly into his discussion. And as we get into chapter six, and, and even you're going to see it, even though you don't hear the word grace within chapter seven, it's going to come into its full orbed reality by the time we get to chapter eight. And this is what is so incredible about it. But Paul now in chapter six launches it out. Now, don't forget where it came from. It's those three words we talked about last week. The first word we talked about, which I never do, but I was so proud of myself, and I'm going to do it again this week. But we have three words we looked at. Remember the ruin of humanity, the rescue of humanity, and the reign of humanity. Remember, those were our three words. But now everything is, now how is it that grace reigns, Jesus reigns, we join him in reigning in some way in this world? Now, Paul launches it out in 520. He said, look, the law came to increase the trespass, but where grace in, or sin increased, grace abounded all the more, and in many ways, he knew in the back of people's heads they were going to be thinking something, and he knew that the question that they would be asking, I'll come back to that, was, what shall we say then? And we continue in sin that grace may abound. He knew they were going to ask that. So great, if this grace is so amazing, then we might as well just go sin. And he looks at them, and he says this statement, by no means, it's this Greek word, meganoita, are you kidding me, would be the idea. No way. It's almost relying upon this statement. I remember I was reading this in a book that I just would have been reading with the staff recently by W.H. Auden. He was talking about crooks, and I think sometimes Christians can begin to think like crooks. I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. It's not that way at all. And so into this, Paul launches out this statement, and here's the, the three things that I wanna kinda get across to us today, and I think we're only gonna be able to get one of them done, but that's okay. We're going to talk about this idea of know, we're going to talk about this idea of consider, and we're going to talk about this idea of present, okay? Those are our three words. Now, I'm going to kind of now shift them just a little bit, and we're going to put an H in front of them all so we can try to remember them. And again, I never do this because I think it's so cheesy, but I'm going to still do it. Know the head. That's what we're going to talk about today specifically is the idea of the head. We're going to talk about grace as it relates to how we think through things or how we wrestle with things, the idea of the knowledge that we need. Then we're going to talk about this idea of the heart with this idea of consider, and we'll kind of see there when we get there what that means. And then we're going to talk about the hands, the head, heart, hands. Those aren't mine. They've been around forever. But that's really what we're going to look at for these next, either this week, maybe even next week. How is it, though? The question is, how does this grace impact? Now, for Paul, when you look down into verse 3, and this is where we're going to be kind of going, for Paul, he knew that we as believers must know things. In other words, the Daniels have to go to Japan in order for people to know the gospel. Somebody has to tell them about the gospel. They said, we have to run into Christians. In other words, there is a knowledge component to what is talking about here. Now, it's, it's more than this. It's not less than that. But there's definitely a knowledge component in this. That's why Paul says in verse 3, don't you know? Verse 6, we know. Verse 9, we know. Now, let me just say this. One of the things that's happened over the last 10 years within Christianity that's entered in is just we know enough. It's almost like an anti-intellectualism. Let me tell you something. You can study the Bible all of your life, and you will never know it. It is a never-ending resource. Now, again, we're going to talk about it. It is so much more than an intellectual endeavor. But don't let anybody ever tell you we know enough because the moment that we say we know enough, we think somehow in the back of our heads that we have arrived at something. There is never arrival inside of the Christian faith. We are always learning and growing because it's not just learning intellectually. It's also learning experientially. 
Man, as a kid, one of the things that I did was my dad would always go work on cars. And while he was working on cars underneath him, you know, he's going crazy. And experientially, I, or excuse me, knowledge-wise, I know a ton about the combustion engine because I'm a chemistry guy. If you walked me through, I know a ton intellectually about a combustion engine. You put me under a car or you pop the hood, I don't know anything. I don't know where the flux capacitor is. I don't know where the, you know, the horn bearings are. I don't know where any of those things are because in this, it's not only a cognitive endeavor, it's an experiential endeavor. We gotta have both of these things. Now, what he's saying here though, and this is the reason I want you to kind of get into this and understand it's more than just knowledge, but it's not less than. He's trying to help us understand this idea of our solidarity or more specifically, maybe our union with Jesus. He wants us to get that up here. He's going to come in in verse 3, and he's going to bring it down upon us. And this is what he's going to say. Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized, here's the way he's going to try to explain our union with Jesus. All of us who've been baptized into his death, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, here's our key, in newness of life. Now, the emphasis when you look down in verses three through five is what baptism is trying to tell us. Oftentimes, we think of what's happening over here, but this word baptism throughout the New Testament gets used in all kinds of ways, specifically when it's attached to a name. So in 1 Corinthians 10.2, it talks about the Israelites all being baptized into Moses. Well, what was that? They were identifying with Moses. What Paul's trying to say is, is there's something about our identification, something about the way that we see ourselves and think through this thing that we have to understand. By saying in 1 Corinthians 10 that they were baptized into Moses, it meant they, he, they knew he was their leader. He was the one that they were following. He was the one that was going to take them to the promised land. Now, when we look at this particular text in Matthew 6, what he now does is he now connects it, though, to the idea that we were baptized into Christ, into his name. Now, he's our leader. He's the one that we're following. He is the one that's going to guide us. He's the one that's going to protect us. He's the one that's going to get us to the promised land. It's everything in this of now seeing that we have a new identity, we have a new king, we have a new vision, and this is what grace starts to do. It starts to show us now who we really are in Christ. Now, if you remember, right, I've talked about this a lot. I've told you guys over and over again, do you know who you are? Do you know that you're sons and daughters of the King Most High? Paul is hammering this over and over with them to make sure that they get that who they are in Christ now is an incredible reality. Verse five, he goes on, look at this. For if we've been united with him in his death, or in a death like his, excuse me, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul, again, is just drilling this, this new identity. And in this case now, he goes away from baptism and he grabs a farming term. That word united, it's kind of a way in which you would see like a branches, two branches being bound together or grafted together. And the idea is, is that they become one. The whole point of grace, who said, yay, that was so cute. <laughs> yay. 
I want to like bottle that up and like use it next service. Yay! <laughs> oh, the Spirit of God's awesome the way he does things like that. But in it, though, it's describing our union with Jesus. It's one. It's what Paul talked about in Galatians 3.27. He says this amazing statement where he talks about the fact that all of you have been baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. In other words, our identification with Jesus is so close and so real that we are robed in him. Now, again, we may not feel like it at certain days. We may wonder about it at certain days. But if you've come to Christ by grace, through faith, whether you think it or not, that is exactly who you are. You are one with Christ because of the work that he accomplished on the cross and in in resurrecting out of the tomb. We are not oftentimes not aware of it. We don't understand it. We're not cognizant of it. Like we weren't cognizant of the fact that we were in Adam and we just kept on sinning. But if you have come to know Christ, if you've been baptized into Christ, you are intimately in every way identified with and in Christ, whether you feel like it or not. You're one. In other words, he's not just creating a religion for us to walk through But this grace now, this atmosphere of love, is the intimacy to know and be with Christ. This is what we're trying to grasp and think through and wrestle through that when we get to verse 11 becomes so important. But when you look down in verse 5, look down in there. There's something that's bigger in this that we're identified in his death and his resurrection. Now that is crazy to me. Last week, we tried to build out the idea that because we're in Adam, we have a solidarity with him, that on the day that he sinned, out of our solidarity with him, now sin and death reigns over us. In other words, now, because of our solidarity with Adam, that us being literally, in many ways, in the garden with him, we now had sin and death reign over us. But when you look down in there and you look at this idea of death and resurrection, now we have a solidarity with Jesus We're no longer in that name anymore. And in in an interesting way, I'm no longer Todd from Adam, humanity. I am now Todd from Jesus. I'm a completely different man. And you too, if you've come to him by faith, are also completely new. But this resurrection now means that you are a new creation. You have eternal life. Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives. Think about that term in me. That's nuts. Again, anybody that thinks they know all this already, figure that one out. That is incredibly deep. But not only have we died with him, because we've resurrected with him, now here's the crazy part about it, Colossians 3. One, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your thing on, uh, hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There is something going on here that when Jesus died and buried and rose again, all of us now who by faith through grace come to Jesus Christ, we were with him in that historical moment. And that is crazy. But because we were with him in that crazy historical moment and our identity got shifted away from Adam towards Jesus, now everything has changed. 
And everything in all of history is moving towards the point in which Jesus Christ will come back. And if you are in Christ, if you've been baptized into Christ, if your new identity is in Christ by grace through faith, I promise you that when Jesus Christ comes back, you will not regret doing anything that he's called you to do in this life. Everything is moving that direction. But there's practical stuff to this. Look at verse six. I love this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And I'll explain that to you in just a second. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, the old self here that he's talking about is the kind of person that we were maybe before we rescued Jesus, or we were rescued by Jesus before his reign came over us. But the idea is, is that old part of us, that old Adam was crucified. It was nailed to the tree. And that body of sin that he's talking about, when you look down in here, was kind of a, the vehicle of sin. I love how he says it in there. It's being brought to nothing. It's being rendered inoperative. It doesn't work anymore. I'm going to be a little graphic here to help you understand it, but, and I've told this story before, just go with me. When I first started, like, growing up and learning how to hunt, I'll never forget this, the first thing I ever went and hunted for, and again, if you're offended by this, just know I'm from Wyoming, so no need to be offended. But I remember going out to the goose pit, and my grandpa had given me, you know, this shotgun, and I'm sitting there with my shotgun, and, you know, he just told me, hey, you know, I'm going to start calling in the geese, so he's, you know, on his little goose call thing, and all of a sudden, some geese start coming in. Now, I'm all hunkered down with my gun, and I'm like so excited. My dad's on the other side, and all I'm thinking about is I can't wait to jump up and start throwing lead. And I knew I probably wouldn't hit anything because, you know, you just, you just know on your first try, you're never going to do it. But I jumped up when those geese came in, and I, lead started flying, and I hit a goose. But I didn't kill it. Oh, I was like, no. And you're just watching this thing. It was, it was like, I'm like, no. You know, and the thing crashes, and my grandpa looks at me and goes, well, go get it. So I get out of the pit, and I walk up to this goose, right? And it's just staring at me, standing there, looking at me like, seriously, bro, you shot me? <laughs> and so I'm like, well, what do I do, right? Like, how do you go grab a goose? So I start walking up to it to grab it, and its wings flew out, and it started making a hissing sound. And I'm serious, it had fangs like this. It was so huge. <laughs> Right, and I'm like trying to figure out how am I gonna grab this goose? And my grandpa gets out of the pit. I'll never forget this, because it was like, suddenly I thought, oh, my grandpa's the baddest man of all time. He gets out, and he just kind of walks over to the goose, and the goose, you know, with the giant fangs and the 20-foot wingspan, right, is just sitting there doing these things. And my grandpa grabbed it by the neck. I'm <laughs> going, no way. And for those of you that don't know, in order to eat the animal, you have to kill the animal. Just to kind of heads up on what I'm about to say. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever seen this, he wrung the goose's neck, right? Problem, the body went that way and the head stayed in his hand. Again, as a little kid, I'm like, The bird flies through the air. There's a point coming to this, by the way. The bird flies through the air, lands over there. The feet are going crazy. The wings are going crazy. And it just kept going for like the longest time. I'm like, be dead already. You know, I thought for sure, I thought certainly I'm going over there and I'm going to have to cast a demon out of it because the legs are still going. The, you know, the wings are still going. In other words, it was dead, but it wasn't inoperative yet. 
When we come to know Jesus Christ, our old self, while the head gets taken off, sin still kicks and flops like crazy, but it is being made inoperative. The old Todd, when you look down at the way that it's put here, is being brought to nothing. In other words, I hate to tell you this, that while the old self is dead, it is still kicking like that stinking goose. It's still flopping, it's still going. But here's the greatest news in the world for those of you that by faith have come to know Jesus Christ. One day that sin will be gone forever. Yes. So it doesn't mean we don't sin, but the dominion of sin has been defeated. It's dying. It's faded away. The master and dominion of sin has ended forever for those in Christ. And let me just say this to all of you who have come to Christ by grace through faith. You are free from sin. Now, do we still sin? Yes. But you are free from it. You're different. You don't have to sin any longer. And this is the mistake that I think sometimes we make. We are not free to sin. We are free from sin. I don't have to sin anymore. Those moments that were angry and frustrated and driving on the stupid 405, when they said 20 million people in Japan, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd be angrier than I already am. We don't have to sin. Will we sin? Oh, yes, we will. I never want to say we won't. But there's a power here inside of this grace that's so amazing. But the question is we have to ask, free to what? What are we free to? If God has done all this work to set us free from sin and death, all these things that cause so much corruption and terribleness around the world, then what are we free to do? And I'm glad you asked. Verse 8, watch what Paul says. Watch his argument. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He, he's encapsulating his argument. Isn't this amazing about Christ? But because we are united with Christ, everything that's true about Christ is true about us. And for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And I'm about to unpack that one because that one's amazing. But Why? That the life he lives, he lives to God. You are free to what? You're free to live for God. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.15, we talked about this last week, that, that we died, or Jesus died so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him. The freedom we have now, if you're a follower of Jesus, is you don't have to pursue the rat race anymore. You don't have to pursue the craziness of this world. You now have a master, the great one that you've been baptized into. He is now the master. He has set the path. Everything about what we need, we have all for us. You can quit living that way and live wholeheartedly for what you were designed to do in the first place, to live for him. You no longer have to live for yourselves. This is what grace is. Grace is not the opportunity to live for myself. Grace is the power and the force and the atmosphere of love that now allows you to live in the way God intended you to live for him. Now, in so many ways, we as Americans are like, whoa. It's about me, isn't it? Let me just be the first one to break it to you if you don't already know this. 
It's not about you. It's about him. Paul's whole point that he's going through here, that he's emphasizing that Christ died, and he died once for all. I love that term. It's an important term that, that gets used over and over in the book of, of Hebrews. And the reason it's so important is it's talking about the finality of Christ's work. Paul's emphasis here is that this believer has a confidence that the king of our rescue, this King Jesus that we're talking about that reigns by grace in this world that now is completely reigning by sin and death in it, there will come a time in everything that is happening that King Jesus will bring it all to an end and he will reign fully as the one that sits over all things. The sin of Adam will never be repeatable again. By the time we arrive where we're doing, we're not gonna be in the garden. We're gonna be in a completely different place that is free from Ever, forever from sin, we're going to enter into the life that God has for us. But here's the crazy part. It doesn't start in the future. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, new creation broke in, and we have life, not just in the future, but we have life now. We have the capacity to live as God has called us to. And this is what's so amazing about grace. is the freedom that God has given us, not to sin, but from sin, a freedom not to live for ourselves, but for him. And I promise you, once we learn more and more what it means to live for him, Cornerstone will become more and more and more the church that God calls us to be. We will never be able to reach not only our community and our state and our nation, but our world until Cornerstone as a whole starts to realize God has bestowed his grace upon us, a power and a force, an atmosphere of love for him. What we're gonna learn next week, because I'm gonna stop now because it's 10.09, but what we're gonna learn next week though is this changes everything about us. It changes how we use our hands. It changes how we use our ears. It changes how we use our mouth. It changes how we use our feet. It changes our pocketbook. It changes everything down to our marriages. It changes our families. It changes our workplace. Why? Because Jesus's good reign and rule is meant to start inside of us as who know Jesus, but it's meant to expand. It's meant to go to people. It's meant to be talked about and engaged with. And by the grace of God, that power, that force, that atmosphere of love, I really believe God can do that inside of Cornerstone. He's done it. He is doing it. And I tell you what, I believe there's so much more for us in this grace. Now, let me just say this as I finish. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't understand this grace. And it may seem strange that I'm calling you actually to live for him and not for yourself, but you will never find contentment. You will never find joy. You will never find satisfaction. You will never find true happiness in living for yourself. In fact, you will find what humanity has lived, has figured out ages and ages and ages is that when we live for ourselves, it is just destruction. But if you bend your knee to that king, that one in whose name we're called to be baptized, I promise you it's not gonna get easier, it's not gonna get safer, it's not gonna get more secure, but you will find the reason for which you were created, and that is to make much of him. For those of you in here, though, that think somehow grace is this opportunity now to live for yourself, this opportunity to sin, I'm scared for you. Grace is not that. 
Grace is something that is so much more powerful that's intended to radically transform you. And if you are still one who is living for yourself that somehow thinks that grace is this opportunity just to go and do whatever I want, that I'm now trying to satiate myself and everything, I would say this, you may not understand grace. And today is the day to bend your knee to the king for the rest of you in here that know Jesus. I'm gonna finish the way I finished last week. You're free. You're free. During the Civil War, one of the things that I was shocked to learn was the amount of free slaves that still lived in the South. They knew they were free. They had a piece of paper that said they were free, but yet they stayed under the oppression of the slave owners. Why? Because not only is it that we need to know we're free, but then we have to actually break free and live free. And so in the name of the Father, who's created this atmosphere of love called grace, and there's no better atmosphere to live in. In the name of the Son who came and he died and was buried and he rose again, and all of you that by grace through faith have come to know him, you live in that death, burial, and resurrection with him. You're different. In the name of the Holy Spirit, the power that is needed to be the people God's called us to be, cornerstone, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are free. You are free to serve God with everything you are. And I would say this, in the words of Rocky, go for it. <laughs> and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.